Welcome to Reimagining Atlantis. My name's Tori, and I'll be your host. It's another week, and you're back again, my friends. I am so honored to have your support. I feel like I can't say it enough to truly tell you how much I appreciate your interest. I have a confession to make. I stopped reading Atlantis the Antediluvian World about two-thirds of the way through. I might pick it up again, but the overt racism is just too much for me. I spent a bit of time doing some research on Donnelly, and not to my surprise, he was very racist, and believed that the white people were smarter and more adapt to success than the black races, and that slavery was meant to be beneficial for both races. I fundamentally disagree with this thought process, as it was only a hundred years ago that women were not considered smarter or more adapted to success than a man. Enough of the negative and more of the positive. This episode focuses on the great deluge of all, the flood of Duclean and Pyra, who were the parents to Helene, who lends his name to the Hellenes. I broke down a bit on what Plato meant on the destruction of Athens and that what happened after the Atlantean-Athenian-Egyptian War. I know that in these past few episodes, I've veered from Plato's works a bit to go on a tangent in other areas, but I think it's important to have the pieces of information. I think the only way to truly understand would be to live during the time of Plato, but the next best thing is to immerse ourselves in how they thought and how they placed their words. To accomplish this episode, I have used the help of the following authors. Homer. Homer, a famous traveling performer who lived roughly around 750 BCE and performed on the events of the Battle at Troy. He created a sequel called The Odyssey that describes Odysseus's journey home. Plato, a classical Greek intellectual who was our primary source for Atlantis, living roughly around 425 BCE. The story of Atlantis was written around 360 BCE. Let me begin by observing, first of all, that 9,000 was the sum of years which had elapsed since the war which was said to have taken place between those who dwelt outside the Pillars of Hercules and those who dwelt within them. This war I'm going to describe. Of the combatants on one side, the city of Athens was reported to have been the leader and to have fought out the war. The combatants on the other side were commanded by the kings of Atlantis, which, as I was saying, was an island greater in extent than Libya and Asia and when afterwards was sunk by an earthquake, became an impassable barrier of mud to voyagers sailing from hence to any part of the ocean. The progress of the history will unfold the various nations of barbarians and families of Hellenes which then existed, as they successfully appear on the scene. But I must describe first of all Athenians of that day, and their enemies who fought with them, and the respective powers and governments of the two kingdoms. But let us give the precedence to Athens. In the days of old, the gods had the whole earth distributed among them by allotment. There was no quarreling, for you cannot rightly suppose that the gods do not know what was proper for each of them to have, or 
knowing this, that they would seek to procure for themselves by contention that which was more properly belonged to others. They, all of them, by just appointment, obtained what they wanted, and peopled their own districts. And when they had peopled them, they tended us, their nurslings and possessions, as shepherds tend their flocks, excepting only that they did not use blows or bodily force as shepherds do, but governed us like pilots from the stern of a vessel, which is an easy way of guiding animals, holding our souls by the rudder of persuasion according to their own pleasure. Thus did they guide all mortal creatures. Now, different gods had their allotments in different places, which they set in order. Hephaestus and Athene, who were brother and sister, and sprang from the same father, having a common nature and being united in the love of philosophy and an art, both obtained their common portion of this land, which was naturally adapted for wisdom and virtue, and they implanted brave children of the soul, and put into their minds the order of government. Their names are preserved, but their actions have disappeared by reason of the destruction of those who received the tradition and the lapses of ages. For when there were any survivors, as I have already said, they were men who dwelt in the mountains, and they were ignorant of the art of writing, and they had only heard the names of the chiefs of the land, but very little about their actions. The names they were willing enough to give to their children, but the virtues and the laws of their predecessors they knew only by obscure traditions, and, as they themselves and their children lacked for many generations the necessaries of life, they directed their attention to the supply of their wants, and of them they conversed, to neglect of the events that had happened in times long past. For mythology and the inquiry into antiquity are first introduced into cities when they began to have leisure, and when they see that necessaries of life have already been provided, but not before. And this reason why the names of the ancients have been preserved to us and not their actions. This I infer because Solon said that the priests in the narrative of that war mentioned most of the names which are recorded prior to the time of Theseus, such as Cecropa and Erechtheus and Erechtheonis and Eristiathon, and the name of the women in like manner. Moreover, since military pursuits were then common to men and women, the men in those days, in accordance with the custom of time, set up a figure and the image of the goddess in full armor to be a testimony that all animals which associate together, male as well as female, may, if they please, practice in common the virtue which belongs to them without the distinction of sex. Now the country was inhabited in those days by various classes of citizens. There were artesian and there were husbandmen. And there were also a warrior class, originally set apart by divine men. The latter dwelt by themselves and had all things suitable for nurture and education. Neither had any of them anything of their own, but regarded all that they had as common property. Nor did they claim to receive of the other citizens anything more than their necessary food, 
and they practice all the pursuants which we yesterday described as those of our imaginary guardians. Concerning the country, the Egyptian priest said was not only probable but manifestly true, that the boundaries were in those days fixed by the isthmus, and that in the direction of the continent extended as far as the heights of Catherion and Parnas. The boundary line came in the direction of the sea, having the district of Orpus on the right, and the river Esposus on the limits on the left. The land was the best in the world, and was therefore able in those days to support a vast army, raised from the surrounding people. Even the remnant of Attica, which now exists, may compare with any region in the world for the variety and excellence of its fruits, and sustainableness of its pastures to every sort of animal, which proves what I'm saying. But in those days the country was fair, as now, and yielded far more abundant produce. How shall I establish my words? And what part of it can truly be called a remnant of the land that once was? The whole country is only a long promontory, extending far into the sea, away from the rest of the continent, while the surrounding basin of the sea is everywhere deep in the neighborhood of the shore. Many great deluges have taken place during the 9,000 years, for that is the number of years which have said to have elapsed since the time which I'm speaking. And during all this time, and through so many changes, there has never been any considerable accumulation of soil coming down from the mountains, as in other places. But the earth has fallen away all around and sunk out of sight. The consequence is, that in comparison of that then was, there are remaining only the bones of the wasted body, as they may be called, as is the case of the small islands. All the richer and the softer parts of the soil having fallen away, and the mere skeleton of the land being left. But, in the primitive state of the country, its mountains were high hills covered with soil, and the plains, as they are termed by us, of Phelius, were full of rich earth, and there was an abundance of wood in the mountains. Of this, the last traces still remain. For although some of the mountains not only afford substance to bees, but not so very long ago, there were still to be seen roofs of timber cut from trees growing there, which were of a size sufficient to cover the largest houses, and there were many other high trees cultivated by man and bearing abundance of food for cattle. Moreover, the land reaped the benefit of the annual rainfall. Not as now, losing the water which flows off the bare earth and into the sea, but having an abundant supply in all places, and receiving it unto herself, and treasuring it up in the close clay soil. It led off into the hollows of the streams which it absorbed from the heights, providing everywhere abundant fountains and rivers, of which there may still be observed sacred memorials in places where fountains once existed. And this proves the truth of what I'm saying. Such was the natural state of the country, which was cultivated, as we may well believe, by true husbandmen, who made husbandry their business, and were lovers of honor, and of a noble nature, and had the soil the best in the world, and the abundance of water, and, in the heaven above, an excellently a tempered climate. 
Now the city in those days was arranged on this wise. In the first place, the Acropolis was not as now. For the fact that a single night of excessive rain washed away the earth and laid bare the rock, and at the same time there were earthquakes, and then occurred the extraordinary inundation, which was the third before the great destruction of Duclion. The fact is that wherever the extremity of winter frost or of summer does not prevent, mankind exists, sometimes in greater, sometimes in lesser numbers. And whatever happened either in your country or in ours or in any other region of which we are informed, if there are any actions, noble or great, in any other way remarkable, they have been written down by us of old and are preserved in our temples. Whereas just when you and other nations are beginning to provide with letters and the other requisites of civilized life, after the usual interval, the stream from heaven, like a pestilence, comes pouring down and leaves only those of you who were destitute of letters and education. And so you have to begin all over again like children, and know nothing of what happened in ancient times, either among us or among yourselves. As for those genealogies of yours which you now recount to us, Solon, they are no better than the tales of children. In the first place you remember a single deluge only, but there were many previous ones. In the next place, you do not know that there were formerly dwelt near land the fairest and noblest races of men which ever lived, and that you and your whole city are descendant but from a small seed or remnant of them which has arrived. And this was unknown to you, because for many generations the survivors of that destruction died, leaving no written word. For there was a time, Solon, before the great deluge of all, when the city, which is now Athens, was first in war, and in every way the best governed of all cities, is said to have performed the noblest deeds, and to have had the fairest constitution of any which tradition tells, under the face of heaven. So let's talk about the great flood of Duclion. Duclion was the son of Prometheus. Prometheus was a titan who fought on behalf of Zeus and the Olympians during the Titanomachy or the Titan-Olympian War. Prometheus had a twin brother named Epimetheus. They each had their own superpowers and Prometheus had the ability of foresight or to be able to see the future whereas Epimetheus had the ability of hindsight. So hindsight's 2020, so he could reflect better on what had already happened. While Prometheus is characterized as ingenious and clever, Epimetheus is usually depicted as foolish. According to Hesiod, there were five different stages of man. Kronos created the golden age of man, which was a time of prosperity and peace that allowed all living beings to live in harmony to be happy and in love. It is said that in this age, animals could speak with a human voice and no one would grow old or get ill. Together, they lived in abundance of everything and even when their time was over, death came during sleep and without any pain. The golden age ended when Prometheus conferred on mankind 
the gift of fire, and all other arts. For this, Zeus punished Prometheus by chaining him to a rock in the Caucasus Mountains, where an eagle would eternally eat his liver during the day, and at night, Prometheus would regenerate his liver, only to repeat over again. So, Zeus, as a curse, sent humans the very first woman, and she was a beautiful woman named Pandora, and he gave her to Prometheus's brother Epimetheus. The gods had entrusted Pandora with a box, but it was actually really a jar, and she was forbidden to open it. However, her uncontrollable curiosity got the better of her, and she ultimately opened this jar, whereby unleashing all manners of evil into the world. Despite Prometheus's warning, Epimetheus still received this gift of Pandora from the gods. Pandora, when she opened her jar, released mischief and sorrow, plague and diseases. But then Pandora shut the jar and trapped hope in the jar. Now I guess it begs the question, why is hope considered an evil? But that opens us up to a whole new bag of philosophy. According to Plato, in his work The Protagoras, the twin titans were entrusted with distributing the traits among the newly created animals. Epimetheus was responsible for giving a positive trait to every animal. But when it was time to give a positive trait to man, since he lacked foresight, he found that there was nothing left. Prometheus decided that humankind's attributes would be the civilizing of arts and fire, which he ultimately stole from Athena and Hephaestus. Prometheus later stood trial for his crime, and here is Plato in the context of his dialogues. Epimetheus, the being in whom thought follows production, represents nature in the sense of materialism, according to which thought comes later than thoughtless bodies and their thoughtless motions. Plato, in his work called The Cradleist, recounts the golden age of humans who came first. He clarifies that in Hesiod, he did not literally mean that the humans were made of gold, but instead were good and noble. As a reminder, this was also the end of the Stone Age, when the golden age of man died. I'm not sure when Prometheus had a son exactly, but I'm assuming it's before he was cursed by Zeus, but who knows? Sometimes women be thirsty and they see this guy chained to a rock and like, hey, what are you doing tonight? Regrowing your liver? I don't think so. So that one brave woman was called Clemeni, and she was the daughter of Okeanus and Tethys, and together they had a son called Ducleon. Duke Leon eventually took a wife named Pyra, who was the daughter of Epimetheus and Pandora. Yes, yes, this makes them cousins, but let's be honest, in Greek mythology, incest is best. Since Prometheus had the ability to see the future, he was able to warn his son about the upcoming flood that would end the ultimate Bronze Age of man. This is not the Bronze Age of fighting that we know, but instead more of how they labeled the age of man. So this is the flood that happened before the Trojan War and Zeus ended up having his last straw with man because of King Lycaon and he was a king of Arcadia. 
So King Lycaon tried to trick Zeus into eating his grandson, and Zeus turned him into a wolf, and Lycaon became the father of Lycanthropy, or better known as a werewolf. Duke Leon, with the aid of his father Prometheus, built a chest, and he and his wife climbed inside. Duke Leon had provisioned his chest carefully so that when the waters receded after nine days, he and his wife Pyra were the one surviving pair of humans. Their chest ended up touching solid ground on either Mount Parnassus or Mount Etna in Sicily or Mount Athos in Chalcidia or Mount Othres in Thessaly, depending on your sources. Duke Leon is best identified with Aquarius because, quote-unquote, during his reign, such quantities of water poured from the sky and that a great flood resulted. Helene was from Thessaly. Homer, in the part of the Iliad, known as the Catalog of Ships, mentions the Hellenes as a small tribe in Thessalic Pythia, among those commanded by Achilles. According to Thucydides, Achaea Pythios has the birthplace of Helene and was the home of the Hellenes. He says that before Helene, the name Hellas didn't exist, but rather there were various tribes which went under different names, particularly Pelagosian. It was only when Helene and his sons grew strong in Pythoias that they allied with various cities in war, and these cities, one by one, through their association with Helene and his sons, came to be called Hellenes, though it was a long time before the name could be applied to all. So now that you got to hear a little bit of that rant, I think it's important to understand the difference between how Zeus would flood a place versus how Poseidon would flood a place. Zeus was the god of the sky and storms. Zeus would cause a flood by excessive rain, whereas Poseidon was said to ride his chariot on the seafloor pulled by four hippocampi, or fish-tailed seahorses. This would be indicative to, like, tidal waves as opposed to rain. Here's Plato. In the first place, you remember a single deluge only, but there were many previous ones. In the next place, you do not know that there were formerly dwelt near land the fairest and noblest race of men which ever lived, and that you and your whole city are descendant from a small seed or remnant of them which survived. And this was unknown to you because for many generations the survivors of that destruction died, leaving no written word. For there was a time, Solon, before the great deluge of all, when the city, which is now Athens, was first in war, and in every way best governed of all cities, is said to have performed the noblest deeds and to have had the fairest constitution of any which tradition tells under the face of heaven. Alright, so what I'm gathering from what Plato is saying here is that there was a master flood before Solon went to Egypt, and I'm even going to throw in there, before the Trojan War. There were people who lived in Attica before the current classical era Greeks, and then after this flood, there were only a few survivors, and the classical era Greeks are descendant of them. The quote-unquote Bronze Age Athenians did not have a writing system or 
that written history was destroyed, and when the historians who dwelt in the city died from a flood, they lost their history as well as what happened during the quote-unquote Bronze Age. The land of Attica, before being renamed to Athens, was in a war with the Atlanteans, and after the war there was a flood that destroyed the city, leaving only the herdsmen in the mountains, and that they never learned how to write. This same thought process aligns with Diodorus when he says that the Libyan Amazons were destroyed by an earthquake and that their city was torn asunder many generations before the Trojan War. I believe that this is the paragraph that people assume that Athens was destroyed at the same time as Atlantis. We also have to take in consideration that this story is Athenian propaganda to make themselves look good. The land of Attica was inhabited before Athena and Poseidon had their disagreement over becoming the patron god of the land. Do you remember that half-snake dude named King Kekropa? Anyway, here's Plato. This I infer because Solon said that the priests in their narratives of that war mentioned most of the names which are recorded prior to the time of Theseus, such as Cecropa and Erechtheus and Erectanius and Erixtheon, and the name of the women in like manner. We remember Theseus of the Minotaur, who became the leader that made Athens famous. Anyway, here's Plato. For there was a time, Solon, before the great deluge of all, when the city, which is now Athens, was first in war, and in every way best governed of all cities, is said to have performed the noblest of deeds, and to have had the fairest constitution of any which tradition tells under the face of heaven. I think we can all agree that the great deluge of all was the flood of Ducleon. I will acknowledge that this is the same flood as Noah and of Gilgamesh. So, before the Great Flood, there was a war between Attica, Egypt, and Atlantis. The Great Flood was created by Zeus in the form of rain for a set amount of days, and it took a total of nine days for the water to recede. It is also important to note that the Great Flood didn't seem to affect Egypt because of this following quote. Now, this has the form of a myth, but really signifies a declination of the bodies moving in the heavens around the earth, and a great configuration of things upon the earth which occurs after long intervals. At such times, those who live on the mountains and in dry lofty places are more liable to destruction than those who dwell by rivers and on the seashore. And from this commality, the Nile, who is our never-failing savior, delivers and preserves us. When, on the other hand, the gods purge the earth with the deluge of water. The survivors in your country are herdsmen and shepherds who dwell on the mountains. But those who, like you, live in cities are carried by the rivers into the sea. Whereas in this land, neither then nor at any other time does the water come down from above on the fields, having always a tendency to come up from below which for this reason, the traditions preserved here are most ancient. This really seems to indicate that Egypt was saved from the great deluge of all, kind of throwing a wrench into a worldwide flood, but maybe he just needed to flood Attica, and then later maybe the Leviant? 
Thank you so much for continuing to listen. Your support means everything to me. If you want to help make this podcast grow, please subscribe and tell just one other person about this podcast today. We are each our own hero in this story we call life. That means one person has the power to change everything. Who is the one person you tell today, hero? Let's help keep Atlantis alive, or at least reimagined. A new episode will be released every Thursday at 9 p.m. See you then. Wait, are you still here? Thank you. It's appreciated. Here's a clip for next week's episode. The name of this place was called Thonis to the Egyptians and Heracleon to the Greeks. It was a city located within the Nile Delta. It gets its name from Thonis from the name of the warden of the canopic mouth of the Nile, who arrested Paris, Prince of Troy, for kidnapping Helen. Also, please note that they once called the Nile Okeanus, which emptied into the sea. Also, Euripides, Stesichorus, and Herodotus all claim that Helen never made it to Troy. Instead, their boat was sent off course and landed in Thonis Heracleon. Paris was arrested and found guilty of rape, and they sent him off to Troy to keep Helen safe until her rightful husband Menelaus would come pick her up. <laughs>